chapter 1, we largely see that on day 4, God gave us time. That was God's gift to us, that He gave us time. He gave us ways to track everything. That a Sakaiism, it flows into something and it's got those bookends of it that's leading us into the center and we saw that He gave us the gift of time. And then in Genesis chapter 2, largely we saw what He ultimately did. Yes, He gave us the gift of marriage and that's a wonderful thing, but He said it's not good that man should be alone. Now, let's articulate. Man, Mr. Terry been having this conversation this morning already. Is, is it that a man shouldn't be alone? Is it just a man by himself shouldn't be alone? And I submit to you, that's probably a lie. A man shouldn't be by himself. A man shouldn't be alone. And you say, well, that means that women can't be alone. No, a woman has never existed without community here on earth. And I don't believe that he's talking about just marriage. Now, we do see the gift of marriage given in Genesis chapter 2, but that's not the only thing that is being presented. We had the gift of time given to us in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, I submit to you that perhaps the larger image that we should be seeing is actually that He has given us the gift of community. He's given us the gift that we should have people in our lives that we should rely on. These people, we watched a, a, a movie last night about a family reunion, and it, it was all the family was coming together, and there's this big scene toward the end of the movie to where the family is reunited again, and they're all the multiple generations, and they're solving generational problems. And I thought about that. Some of us, when we go to the holidays, I don't know about y'all, I've had certain holidays, it's not anymore, frankly, but I used to have several holiday seasons where I didn't know how it was going to be. It might be a tough interaction. It might be some family I didn't want to necessarily see, and it might be a troublesome time that, beloved, He's given us the gift of time, but the problem that I see with time is it gives me a lot of problems. Time is always presenting me with a lot of problems because as time progresses, sometimes things are getting worse. Sometimes things are getting better, but some things just seem to be getting worse. As time is progressing. Some of you I've known for a very long time, and I can look at your heads. I can look at my heads, and I see a lot more gray in those of you that don't dye your hair. And It's something about it. I see that. I've watched you. I see some people like me with less hair than what we used to have. I see all of these changes that are happening in people's lives. and I look at some of you, and some of you I'm convinced look the same that you did in high school. I don't know how that works out. Some of you have the same facial features and the rest of it. Time's been kinder to some than what it has to other people in our lives. We see that God has given us the blessing of time, the gift of time in chapter 1, but it's broken the way that you and I experience it. We see that in chapter 2, He gave us community. Yet the way that you and I experience it is broken. I'm talking about the communities we're going to go into in this holiday season, and some of them are broken. Some of them we don't want to be around. Some of them are just an obligation to be around. But we know that there's something that matters and we go to them. God, if you've given us the gift of time, why does it see, seem to be that the markers that we have show us the cursedness of time, the ungoodness of time? Let me say it that way, the ungoodness. I know that's not a word, but we're inventing them this morning. The ungoodness of time and the ungoodness of community. God, why are you allowing all these things? All that I can think about this week as I've been contemplating this is a movie from in the 1990s with Tom Hanks, and I can't remember the other guy's name in the movie, but he had his legs sawn off, and most of you know what I'm talking about, but in the movie he had had his legs sawn off, and he was on a shrimp boat, and he was out there, and all of these different things, and there comes a bad storm. And the problem with the guy is he's been mad the whole time because generationally he knew he was supposed to die in war. He knew that's what was supposed to happen to him. But this guy that he was with had saved him from that. He knew he was supposed to die in the war, but the guy he was with, he had saved him from this. And the problem is he wasn't thankful the entire time. He, he's mad at the guy he's with. He's hanging out with him. He spends a lot of time. He's really his best friend in so many ways. It's, a, it's an oddity in this movie is the community that they have. It experiences a lot of brokenness, but it experiences some means of salvation for the two. Both of them, in a certain sense, were broken individuals and in need of salvation from the other from something in their lives. Not perhaps in the most ultimate sense. But still, the scene that I've been thinking about is not all of those things. The scene that I've been thinking about is the two are on the shrimp boat and a bad storm comes. And instead, one of them, he just goes out there and he begins to yell at God. Can I tell you in that moment, I associate well with him. There are times, I don't know, maybe, maybe y'all are far better than me and you've never had a moment where you wanted to yell at God. Maybe, maybe you've just never experienced one of those moments where you may have not done it audibly, but within your heart, there was a crying out unto God saying, God, I don't understand, time's broken. God, I don't understand my community's broken, and yet you gave these to us as gifts. Why is all of the goodness in the world, why is it so bad? Why is everything in this world that I face, why is it so catastrophic? God, if you're really good, why aren't you good? Beloved, there's a lot of anger that can be had here. This past week I read of a post of a young man that was making some claims and everything, and he's, he's kinfolk of mine, and all I could respond with, somebody that had sent it to me, was I saw a whole lot of anger in that post. 
it amazes me at how sin causes anger in our lives. We got families in this building that have experienced great tragedy in the last couple of years. There's a lot of anger that builds up. There was a situation this past week, I won't go into great detail, of a young lady that lost her life that should not have lost her life. And in the past week, justice was in some means served. But it'll never make her whole again. It'll never make her family whole again. Her family will continue to mourn her loss. And they'll never be whole again. Beloved, when I read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, I've got to be honest with you. I'm left with a whole lot of questions of God, how are you good? And are you truly good? There's a big question that hangs on to that. And I think that if I'm the first audience of this book, I'm left with that same impression of God, you've got us in the wilderness. How do we know that you're good? God, you've brought us out of Egypt, surely. You've brought us out of this, but how do we know that you're good? It's almost kind of like the man that was saved out from death in the battlefield, but now he's in the wilderness. Now he doesn't have all of his faculties about him. And he's wondering, how is this actually a good situation? Genesis chapter 3 is often used to show us what we call the fall of man. And it's oftentimes that when we focus into Genesis chapter 3, we want to see all of the bad. But I'll submit to you before we even begin this morning, Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most glorious passages of all of Scripture. It is one of the most beautifully written. It is one of the most beautifully gifted passages that we have because it answers chapters 1 and 2. God, if everything is so broken, how dare anybody tell me that it be so good? Do you know that that's happening when you share Christ with some people? Maybe not everybody, but with some people that's happening. That when you share Christ with them and you talk about all the greatness of Christ, all the goodness of Christ and everything, they're experiencing nothing but a world of brokenness and they're wondering, how dare you tell me these things? Beloved, praise God for Genesis chapter 3. Let's go ahead and without further ado, let's begin reading it this morning. Uh, I'm going to read the entirety of it, so I'll not ask you to stand, but I pray that you would reverence the Word of God in your hearts this morning, even as we read the entirety of Genesis chapter 3 together this morning. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And God said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband and with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman thou, whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed forever. Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. 
And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once more we thank you for this most glorious passage that you've given us, O oh God. Father, may we cling to it. May we cling to your word in every degree. But Father, may it also be that your spirit is working these truths within us, O oh God. Father, these are stories. These are accounts. These are your blessed word that is given unto us that we may have life more abundantly here on earth. That Father, the greater knowledge we have of you and the way that you work, the greater we are able to live even in this world, O oh God. Father, we pray that you would lead us, guide us, and direct us into a life that is steadily for, Father, just one step closer to you is all that we know how to pray this morning. We pray it all in thy Son, Jesus Christ, most wonderful and glorious name. Amen and amen. If I were to try to uh, be with my good friends in the Southern Baptist realm, I would tell you that I had five points, and I would tell you that they kind of alliterate at the end of it, and that's a rarity. So if I tell you these real points, I'm going to forget them in the course of it. So I'll go ahead and give them to you now. Is that I do see this section, this, this breaking down into five different particular sections, even in this chapter. Section 1 being verses 1 through 5, and I would call that the temptation. Section 1 being the temptation in verses 1 through 5. The second session being verses 6 and 7, and we would call that the desecration, is that we would call verses 6 and 7 the desecration. And then verses 8 through 13, we would call the examination, the examination. And then verses 14 through 19, I forgot what I was going to call them. So we're going to have to figure that out as we go along. And then verses 20 through 24, we call the separation. So we have the temptation, we have the desecration, we have the desecration, we have the other points. And I'm just going to go through them as we go along. I can never remember my points, but beloved, to see that it breaks down into five movements is ultimately what we're after. So the first movement of this passage, let us see in verses 1 through 5 this morning, as he says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. All that he's doing in verse 1 here, the serpent, he's more subtle, he's more crafty, he's more cunning, he's trying to come after you in such a way as to twist a certain story. And surely there are many of people in our lives that have done that. I know some people that that's all they ever seem to try to do is to catch you in something. I used to talk about a generation of people that wanted to play Bible gotcha is. They really didn't care if you knew what the Bible said. They just wanted to get you on something. They wanted to show that they knew more than what you did. And I have zero respect for Bible gotcha. I'm not going to play Bible gotcha with you. I have zero respect for it. I think it's disrespectful to God because it's the same thing that the serpent did to Adam and Eve over here. If we're going to try to be subtle and use something against somebody and say, has God said that you can eat of every tree of the garden? Well, Eve has to do some cleanup work over here in, in this temptation. And the woman says, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. i got to confess something here that I've not been able to make sense of ever since. So some of y'all are going to have to dig into it and see if y'all can help me understand it. She doesn't name what tree it is. There's two trees, if I remember correctly, that are in the midst of the garden. There's two different trees that are located. There's two different specific trees. We have the tree of life, and then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she doesn't mention which one it is. Now, you and I know, we've read the story enough times, we're familiar enough with the story to know that she she ultimately is the fruit of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that she partakes of, 
but she never names it by name. She never claims it by name. She could have eaten of either of those two trees. Now, I'm going to go back to this once again. Again, I have seen nowhere to where it brings some moral condemnation against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I just don't find that in the Bible. It's not there. Now, we all know we probably don't need to go around that tree. We probably don't need to touch it. But Eve has done something that is catastrophic. What Eve has done is, she said, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The only problem with the statement that Eve makes is, it doesn't appear in the Bible. It's nowhere in the words that God had given her. Now you and I are going to look at this and we're going to analyze it. We're going to say, hey, it makes sense not to touch the tree. If you're not supposed to eat of the tree, why would you go around being uh, around the tree and touching the tree? That just wouldn't make sense, would it? Well, you and I would admit there's some godly wisdom in that, some goodly wisdom in that, that we would not even touch the tree. But beloved, God didn't say it. And if God don't say it, why are you saying it? If there are things that God has said, stay on what the Word of God has said. Because this is not the only time of temptation that we see. You see this same pattern of temptation re-emerging in Matthew in chapter 4, I believe it is, to where Jesus is in the wilderness and He's being tempted of Satan. And do you know what Jesus does? He just gives Satan the Word of God. He doesn't add to the Word of God. He doesn't take away from the Word of God. Jesus stands on the Word of God firmly, says what it says, and that's it. There's a temptation within each and every one of our lives to say, this is the Word of God and you ought not to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, now we may agree on several of these things. I'm going to bring out some of my examples. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. I'm just bringing out my examples about cutting grass on Sunday. Now, that's just one of those things you ought not to do. And I love what Dr. Moeller one time said. He said there's several alts that you ought not to do. And we ought to bring back some of those alts is that we ought not to cut grass on Sunday morning. And I believe that. You ought not to cut grass on Sundays. There's just something about you. You ought not to do that. There's a lot of things that we ought not to do on Sundays. And I will agree with all of that. But I'm also going to go to the point that if we bring it out, I'm not going to tell you that if you cut grass on Sunday that you're going to lose your salvation. I just can't do it. Because then I'm beginning to add to the things of the Word of God when I'm not careful. Now we can have a good discussion about these things and understand all of these things but let's stay on what the Word of God says. Now, if you say you're not supposed to labor on the Sabbath and you believe the Sunday to be the Sabbath, that's a whole different conversation. And we can have these conversations. They're good conversations to have. But if I tell you that God is firmly against ever cutting grass on Sundays, I'm afraid I've added to the things of God. It goes back. How many times I've shared about the communion table? We've been practicing. I'm thankful for this. We've been practicing Sunday, our uh, regular communion on the first Sunday of the month now for two years. This March our second. Our two years of doing this. We will begin our third year of doing this this Sunday morning. I'm rejoicing in the fact that's how long we've had this practice. Now, if I begin to tell you that you have got to practice communion on the first Sunday of the month, I believe that I have misled you. I believe that I have led you astray. I will say this. I believe that the Bible teaches us to do this in remembrance of Him. I believe this is supposed to be a practice of the church. But the moment that I say that you're supposed to do this every single month, or that every time I tell you you're supposed to do this every single Sunday, which may be a strong argument if you read the Bible, but the moment that I tell you you have to do this, I've added to the things of God. And instead of what I think is strengthening the Word of God, we're lessening the Word of God. When we add to the things of the Word of God, all that we ultimately do is create confusion that ought not to be there. And the first primary, primary audience of this would have realized this. It's the children of Israel in the land of the wilderness. It's the children of Israel preparing to go into the promised land and there's some things that God has given them to do. There's some things that God has given them to do. And we know that throughout reading the rest of the Old Testament is that ultimately what happens is they begin to add things to the Word of God. They say, well, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. They begin to add to the things of the Word of God. And what did it ultimately do? It weakened the entirety of the kingdom of God. Because, beloved, if you hold somebody to a standard that is not a godly standard, when it blows up in your face... What recourse do we have? When we demand something more than what God demands, beloved, we've just gone on sinning because we've added to the things of God. I submit to you that the first sin that Eve committed was not that she ate of the fruit. I submit to you the first sin that Eve actually committed over here was when she added to the things of God. Let us be careful that we don't make the ways our ways in the way that I think and the way that I want to do. Last week had an interesting situation. I mentioned something on the porch of this church. 
We have what I call the point of three over here. I don't know if that sounds like, I don't know. Somebody said that sounded political. All I know is the point of three that I have to go to. And it makes sense. We have the point of three that when we have major, when we have unmajor decisions that don't have to be voted on, there's a point of three of us that meet together and we decide. So last week, the point of three, we were discussing something out on the church porch. And I had an idea that I, I thought was a really good idea. But you know what? Those other two, they kind of questioned it. They didn't question me. They just questioned the idea. And all of a sudden, I realized, Zach, that was a dumb idea. You need to correct that and you need to go a different way. Beloved, I love those moments. He has given me this community as a gift. He has given this community. I'm not to overlord this church. That's not my position. That's not my job is to be the overlord. My point is to lead us in the Word of God and in the things of God. And beloved, sometimes I might get a wrong idea. And y'all need to help me get back on the right track. Sometimes you've gotten a wrong idea and you need to be back on track. I'm going to bring this down to Adam over here. Adam kept his mouth shut. Adam didn't speak up when he should have spoken up. Adam over here, because of the way that it says here in this verse, it says, and that was with her, with her in that verse. Yes, it says in verse 8, it says, and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Adam is with her the entire time as it appears. The way that the story is told is that Adam is right there with Eve. Now we can argue, you know, husband's supposed to have the voice and all of this, that, and the other. And beloved, all of it's true and husband ought to have a voice in a marriage. And all of these things are very true, but beloved, you can bring it down to this community is that if somebody in the community sees something else that is going wrong in this community of believers, if somebody else in this community sees something that is being done wrong and doesn't speak up, it's wrong of us. It's wrong of us not to speak up. It's wrong of us not to say, hey dear brother, hey dear sister, you're going in a way which is contrary to the Word of God. You're adding to the things of the Word of God. And that's most often what's going to get us. A lot of us aren't going to have the temptations to go under the Word of God most of us in this culture are going to have the temptation to set boundaries above the Word of God and add to the things of God. All we have to do is stay on the Word of God. When I add to, I need to be dealt with. When you add to, you need to be dealt with. Somebody in our community needs to speak up. It's not good that man should be alone. Not just meaning that he should be in a marriage, but meaning that he should be in a community. And the community relies on one another. I love how somebody talks about, and I don't want to get super political, but I'll just give this statement. Somebody talks about, they say term limits, term limits, and I like the old response of every time you go to vote, you've got term limits right there. Beloved, I love that we live in a country that we can do something like that right there. Again, I'm not trying to get into politics, but I'm saying what a blessed truth that it is that we live in a country that we get to go show up to the polls and we get to express our voice in such a fashion. And if that's not good enough, guess what? You can find the information on every one of your representative officials on there and you can write them a letter and you can send it to them. You can find most of their phone numbers. You can call them up and express wishes. You can express these different things. Maybe you ought to call them and tell them you're praying for them. Maybe you ought to send a letter to them just telling them you're praying for them every now and then. I'm actually considering that. I don't know. Y'all talk to me after service. And we might consider that of us individually writing something to representatives in different fashions, to our U.S., to our U.S. senators, to all the different levels, to our governor, to all these different things. I'm just saying, hey, we're praying for you because we're told to respect those that are in authority over us. But beloved, if we see them going the wrong way, you and I have a responsibility as members of our communities to go to them and to tell them about these things. The worst thing that happens is when we just keep our mouths shut. The worst thing that can happen is when we keep our mouths shut. I think about World War II in the lead up to World War II, how that so many of the Jewish population, they just kept their mouths shut. They wouldn't say anything. They needed to speak up. Somebody needed to speak up. And somebody by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has written some wonderful collection of works, he is one of those that spoke into the issue. And he finally began to speak against him. Now, I've read some of the history, and I'm not sure Bonhoeffer did it perfectly, but I sure am glad that he said something. I sure am glad that he said something and that something was broken in the communities and something needed to be dealt with. I'm not sure Bonhoeffer had all of the perfect answers to it, but at least he spoke up and he began to say things about this. There was even Winston Churchill, who everybody was beginning to laugh at him for thinking that Hitler might be an issue. And Churchill had been saying this entire time. He said, that man is an issue. That man is an issue. And finally, he became an issue. Beloved, we see this even in the course of history that somebody's speaking up. Your voice still needs to be heard. You need to speak up in the place where Adam did not speak up. We need to speak up when things go contrary to the Word of God. Because what the serpent does when Eve opens the door, mind you, the door was not open beforehand. But when Eve opened the door, this is what the serpent does. In verse 4, he says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Well, at first, he's just being sucked. Now he's just a plumb liar. 
In verse 5 he says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now y'all, if I understand this correctly, their eyes are already open. They're already able to see things. They're already able to see everything that it was. It's not a young kitten or something like that, or a young dog, something like that, that their eyes have to be open. No, their eyes were open. As far as I can tell, Eve can see these things. So surely he is talking about the eyes of knowledge and all of these different things. And he said, you're going to know more. You're missing something. Eve, something in your life is not as good as it should be. The ultimate temptation of the serpent here is that God's goodness is not good enough. The ultimate temptation that every one of us that we have is saying God is not good enough. That man that's on the shrimp boat, his life was saved from perishing in battle. Now he thought it to be an honor. But his life was saved from perishing in battle. And he couldn't understand it. The goodness of God, he had turned into thinking was the badness of God. The goodness of God, he began to question. Each and every one of us in our lives, I imagine, I imagine this week, if we were to boil it down to be truthful about it, you've questioned the goodness of God at some point in your life. I don't know about y'all, I have regular moments of that where I'm like, God, is this really good? God, is this really good enough? Is there something better for me on the other side? Is the grass greener on the other side of the fence? Is that what it really is? And y'all, sometimes the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. No lie. Sometimes it just is. But sometimes God's put you in the pasture where you're supposed to stay. Sometimes you might could know something more, but you don't need to know something more. Beloved, God had been nothing but good to Adam and Eve. God had given them abundance. Not little, but God had provided them with abundance. But Satan tempts them, the serpent tempts them, saying, Your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The first temptation that we should ever ignore is to be like God. None of us were created to be God. None of you were created to be in that position of God. How many times we want to be the master of our own fates? I come to an issue that I want to take very carefully <clears throat> because there are ins and outs of it that I do not understand. But I think about the issue of suicide. And it is one issue that I'm convinced of that that's us playing God. And if somebody wants to take their own life in that particular sense, there's complications. Things I'm not saying. If anybody's ever facing something like that, please seek help. Please see somebody. Please talk to somebody. Please talk to somebody that knows what they're talking about. Y'all, I'll talk to you in any way that I can, but I'll be honest with you. If you're dealing, if you're wrestling with something like that, there's probably somebody else you need to talk to. We need to talk to a professional counselor. We need to talk to somebody that knows how to navigate some of these issues. These happen in people's lives, and it's not to be belittled, but beloved, it's not our choice of whether or not we get to play God. There are so many things. We talk about the issue of abortion, and it's a subject that is tricky, and y'all, I, I know it is clear-cut, but I don't want to act like everything around it is clear-cut. Just because the issue itself is clear-cut does not mean that all the parameters of it are clear-cut. But I'm telling you that we don't have the right to play God in that moment. We don't get to be the one that says, I'm going to take the life from another in that moment. In that moment of that innocency of that child, that child who has done no wrong, that child who has not killed anybody else, that child who has not violated the command of God in any fashion, beloved, we do not have the right to become God and take the role of God in that moment. But yet that's what happens is. That's telling me that as much as this is a one-time situation with Adam and Eve over here, that's telling me this is a problem within our communities that each and every one of us are challenged in some sense to say, I want to be the God of my life. I want to be the master of my fate. Beloved, He has made us dependent on Himself. He has made us dependent on the community. We don't get to exist in this world. No man is an island unto himself. As self-sufficient as we think that we are, we're dependent on the rest of the community. And as much good as what a community may do, we're ultimately dependent on God. We're not designed to be like God's. That's one of the worst temptations that we have in our lives is that we try to become God. We try to become the masters of our own fates. In verse 6, it says, look how she responds to it. This is the second movement here. In verse 6, she says, and, or it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed thick leaves together, and made themselves aprons. I tell Miss Tara all the time, and I've told y'all about how sometimes that we're, look, we're looking at finances and we weren't want certain things, and we say we can't have that. And my problem is, I'd buy something shiny, or most likely I'd buy something rusty if I had my way. 
Yeah, that's what I just like. I like things that have rust on them. I got a father-in-law who's the same way. He's taught me bad habits, y'all. Look for things like that. I love looking at that. I got an old truck in a barn I want to fix up. But right now, me and Mr. Terry have different goals. Right now, as much as I want to do those things, I'm not getting to enjoy those things because we got some greater goals. Beloved, that tree was shiny. Or in my case, that tree might have been rusty. Whatever it was. Now, I believe that was a real tree. I believe that was a real fruit. I don't know all the parameters of it. But all that I know is it was something that caused a lustful reaction. It was something that was shiny. It was something that she knew she shouldn't have and yet she wanted and that her husband ate of it too. Beloved, there are things in our life that may be good things. They may be desirous. They may be shiny. They may look good. They may seem good in every way. But we've been told not to partake in them. We ought to know not to touch it. But we better not make it a requirement that we don't touch it. We better not add to the Word of God. Because the moment she added to the Word of God, she said the Word of God is not sufficient. If the Word of God is not sufficient so that we have to add to it, then the Word of God is not sufficient so that we cannot take away from it. Let me say that again, because it gets blurry. If the Word of God is not sufficient enough that we have to add to it, then the Word of God is not sufficient enough that we should not have to take away from it. Because as soon as she added to the Word of God, she took away from the Word of God when she knew that she was not supposed to partake of this, the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. Now that goes back to verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, beloved, every one of you got clothes on this morning. I sure am thankful for that. That's the way it ought to be. I don't care who you are. It ought to be that we've got clothes on. Now, we can argue the amount of clothes. I'm not getting into that argument. I don't care about that argument. But beloved, you and I know that there's some level of clothing that we're supposed to have on. When we go out into the marketplace, we're supposed to have clothes on. When you go out into the rest of the world, into the business world, you're supposed to have clothes on. You're supposed to have all of these things, beloved, mainly because of the elements. If it's wintertime, it's cold. You're going to have to cover up. If it's summertime, be careful. That'll help you not to get burnt. That'll help you not to perish. There's something about clothing that in the world before they partook in this fruit that they should not have before sin entered into the world in that capacity, everything was okay. Everything was in goodness. So that when the children of Israel are reading this in the wilderness, that's exactly the situation they're in. They're in a desert land. They're in a land where in the daytime, it's scorching heat. It will kill you if you're exposed to the elements. At nighttime, it's severely cold. It will kill you if you don't have some support of this. Beloved, what we see even with the clothing of this is God had so blessed them, they didn't even have to worry about their clothes. How fundamental of a need that that is that some of us don't even think about. Terry and I yesterday spent some time talking about some foster homes and some foster children. There was a foster care summit down in Carrollton yesterday and we were listening to them and it was amazing to me to see how many of them have closets. How many of them have pantries. How many of them express that this is what the need is. We need to come around this. We need to have what it was the circle of care is what they were calling for most of the families and how we need to chip in and how we need to be involved on caring for them. There is a multitude of things that a community needs to step into and that they were talking about even with foster care is that their community mattered. I just loved how it spoke to this week's text. How that community matters. How that when they had not let sin enter into the world, they didn't even have to worry about clothes. How basic of a need that we have in our lives that once upon a time, as it were, we didn't even have to worry about. In verse 8, he says, And they heard the voice, our next movement, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Verse 8 is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. They hid themselves from the presence of God. This God who had been eminently good to them, who had been immensely good to them, who had been abundantly kind to them, they're hiding themselves from His presence because they know something has happened. They're no longer the same with God that they used to be in a temptation to be like God. They've now been separated from God and they're choosing to separate themselves from God. It amazes me that if you wind up into entering into a life of sin, it's not that you want to be around God more, it's that you want to be around God less. How many times we can talk about it that I'd just like to turn God off from a situation and be like, God, just let me turn the God light bulb off for a while, dwell in this darkness, handle my business, and then I'll turn the light back on. I'll come to you when I'm ready, but God, this is the basis that I'm in charge of this relationship. That even Adam and Eve, when they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees, of the garden. Well, who created the trees? It was God. Who ruled over all of these things? It was God. 
They thought that they were in charge of their situation when even in sin, they knew that they were not in charge of the situation anymore. How futile our efforts against sin are. It says in verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. I notice how many times men want to blame the woman there. And men say, even Adam blamed the woman. Adam did not blame the woman. Adam blamed God. Adam said, God, it's your fault. They're trying to run from God. They're trying to act like they are God. They're trying to say, God, it's all your fault. And ultimately what happens in sin is we begin to say things such as that is. We begin to say in so many ways, God, it's your fault. Had you not done this? Had you not done that? Had all of you done that? That midst of that storm in the shrimp boat, that's what that man was doing. He was yelling at God saying, God, this is all your fault. Now, I don't know about y'all, but there are times and there are temptations that I want to look at God and I want to say, God, this really is your fault. There's a moment of how dare I. But if I'm admitting my edemic nature, if I'm admitting that I'm ultimately actually an offspring of Adam, if I'm admitting these things about it, I know that there's something about me that wants to do the same until God humbles me down. He says, And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? It is amazing how God immediately begins to question Eve over here. He questions, He first questions Adam. He second questions Eve. He says, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Adam passed the book. Eve passed the book. If anything, that there is a temptation that we have to do, it's to pass the blame. Psychologists study this phenomenon to this day is that we're always trying to pass the blame. We're always trying to blame the previous guy. It was quite funny this, this week on uh, one of the social media platforms, somebody posted something that was talking about some great figure, some great political numbers that had come out and somebody just did a contextual check on it and said those numbers aren't real. It amazes me how one, I don't care what administration it is, doesn't matter what administration it is, one administration is going to say, come in and say, look how good I've done. Look at how good of numbers I've got. And then somebody does a contextual check on it and it's like, you didn't do much at all, Hoss. You didn't do much at all. It seems to be in this continual trajectory. One of the greatest things I've ever looked at was through data that's available is I looked at the scope of our economy and the trajectory that we're on we have a lot of ups and downs. We have a lot of political administrations that will change hand from one party to the next party and all of these different things. And one party blames the other parties. But it's actually just this continual steady trajectory. When you look at the numbers, it's actually a very steady trajectory. There's ups and downs. But overall, it's a continual steady trajectory. That it doesn't seem to be that one guy's going to come in and wreck it. That one guy's going to come in and save it. As much as we want to blame it on somebody else. Sometimes it's just the situation. Sometimes we just messed up. Sometimes I want to pass the blame. And I want to say it was this. And I want to say it was that. And I want to pass the blame as much as I can. Sometimes I have to look at you and say that it was my fault. One of the greatest, or one of the greatest known presidents, and still for most people in our generation, he said something. He said mistakes were made. And what he should have done was said, I made mistakes. He should have owned up and said, I made a mistake. I messed up over here. But they said politically he couldn't say that. Hey, all he could say was mistakes were made. He didn't want to own up to it. Beloved, sometimes the thing that we've got to do is just own up to it. It's not in our nature to want to own up to it, but sometimes we just have to say, I messed up. That's the worst thing I've ever had to do in my life on something. Say, hey, look, Mr. I messed up. It's the worst thing I've ever had to do to my parents to say, hey, y'all, I've messed up on something. Beloved, there are times in our lives where we have to look to one another in our community and say, we've messed up. Instead of me blaming everybody else in the community, let me take the blame. Adam was guilty because he should have stood up. Adam was guilty because he should have stood up. He should have had a voice. He should have said something. Eve was guilty because she should have stood up against the serpent. She should have never added to the Word of God. Beloved, anybody in this passage, everybody's guilty. There's nobody that's innocent in this passage, but they're all wanting to pass the blame. In verse 14, though, notice what it says. Miss Tara pointed this one out to me. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, The Lord asked Adam, the Lord asked Eve. But in verse 14, we see our next movement. The inquisition's over. Now we're into the condemnation. In verse 14 it says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat of all the days of thy life. 
the cursing that is upon the serpent over there, that he'll eat dust all the days of his life. Dust is another way to say nothingness. Dust is another symbolism of sin. That's all that the serpent is going to do the rest of his life is eat of sin, is eat of the dust of this world. In verse 15 he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We have the most wonderful, glorious truth that is presented here. It's tucked away into verse 15, and we almost miss it for what it is. If you're ever watching um, The Passion, The Passion of Christ, you can't even, you have to read the subtitles to understand what's going on because they did it in, I can't remember if they did it in Hebrew or if they did it in Aramaic. They may have actually done that movie in whatever language it was. It's in a different language, and you have to read along in the subtitles. But there's this scene in that movie, and I've not seen it, but I've not seen it, but one time I believe it was, but. Uh, in part of the scene, there's this snake that's crawling. And it's crawling in the Garden of Eden even as Jesus is praying. The seed that is promised is ultimately Christ over here. But the blessing of this passage is God is confronting sin. And He's saying, you've done messed up. But it's going to be okay. You've done messed up. But there's hope of redemption. You've messed up. You've messed the rest of the world up. But there's the hope of redemption. Is that the serpent, as bad as you are, I'm going to win. Serpent, as bad as you are, as much havoc as you have wreaked in this, this is going to win. This is going to win out. There is going to be judgment that is brought against you. And it says in verse 16, it says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou, thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. There is, in that verse, there is talking about the relationship between husband and wife. Most of this has been dealt with in terms of community. This one begins with marriage, which is the most central relationship in our communities, is the marriage between a husband and a wife. That's the most central one to it all. And he says there's going to be problems. Specifically, it seems to be when you read and you trace the language of this, it seems to be that there's a problem with ladies in a marriage that want to take over and rule over their husbands. And it seems to be that there's a problem with husbands that they just want to sidestep and not speak up. There seems to be a problem in our communities. A pattern is that what happens oftentimes is it may be that a wife has wanted to take too much control and it's often because a husband won't take any word at all. It's not that a husband is supposed to lord over his wife. That's not supposed to be the case. It is an act of submission, not an act of obedience, as we've been discussing in recent weeks. It's an act of submission, not of obedience. There's an act of our nature, which our natures are warring against each other. Yes, we can see all the problems of this passage. Yes, we can see all of this that is said into this verse, but at least know this about marriage, that sometimes there's going to be some problems. But I love what somebody said. I said marriage shouldn't be hard. Marriage actually shouldn't be hard. The situations you face may be hard, but the relationship between the two of you shouldn't be hard. Beloved, I submit to you, and I know this about me and Miss Tara, we've really not had major problems. Now, we've, we've, walked through some, we've walked through some stuff in two years of marriage. I've not had a problem with her. She's not had a problem with me. Anytime that a hint of that begins to come into the picture, I know what it is. One of us has gotten sideways with God. The problems that ultimately occur in our communities is because somebody has gotten sideways with God. Somebody's not doing what they should be doing. Is it the wife? Is it the husband? I don't know. Maybe it's both of them. I don't know. But I know this, that we get sideways. That you're a broken and a fallen individual. Sometimes in a marriage, conflict's going to happen. What do you do? Both of you need to get right with God. Both of you need to do what you need to do. Both of you in this community are responsible. You don't get to say, well, it's my husband's fault, well, it's my wife's fault. No, you have to own up and you have to say, it's my fault or it's both of our fault and both of us need to get back unto God. There are so many of these things that sometimes we just want to pass it off. Sometimes this, you, this verse gets used abusively. Please, dear husbands, never use this verse abusively, please. And I say that to husbands because that seems to be where the biggest problem lies. They say this gives them permission to overlord. No, it does not. This gives you permission to act like you ought to act. This gives you permission to pursue God in the way that you ought to be pursuing God. Had Adam done that in the first place, none of us would have been in this situation. And I promise you, if you know anything about yourselves, you're not perfect either. Because you happen to be a son of Adam. In verse 17 it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and thou hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. 
thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and for dust shalt thou return." I took you from nothing. I breathed the breath of life into you from nothingness. From nothing I created you and from nothing you're going back to. Adam, you think you're going to hop up here and be like me? Adam, you think you're going to hop up and be like God? You're nothing. Beloved, it's not a burden for us to remember that we're nothingness. That even, I believe it was either Isaiah or Jeremiah that turns and he says, such a worm as I. And he calls himself a worm over there. Beloved, that's the way that you and I should view ourselves. Is in the nothingness and the relation to God that we are. But we should wonder, why has God sought to have His presence among His people? The children of Israel wound up in Egypt ultimately because of sin. It's interesting to know. God knew it was going to happen before it ever happened. God told Abraham several, several years before it ever happened that they were going to wind up in the land of Egypt. That they were going to be down there for 400 years. They were going to be down there for multiple generations. They were going to be down there until their patriarchs were all forgotten. And it was just offspring. They were going to be down there until they realized they were nothing. They were the selected children of God. And they were going to have to dwell in the land of Egypt and be as nothing. They sure were going to have to get low. Beloved, before God can ever preserve us, God has to humble us. Before we can ever walk into His presence again, we've got to figure this thing out that we're not God. We've got to be humbled. And look what He does. In verse 20 is our final motion. He says in verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Seems to be maybe Adam's figured out he really does have to live in community. In verse 21 it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims with a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That even in God exiling them, even in God separating them from Himself, He is abundantly kind to them. He's given them that there may be reproduction. He's given to them that there may be the extension of the other generations. He's given them the promise in verse 15 that there's going to be the seed of the woman which is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what He does. He allows them to go in community. He allows Adam to know that his wife Eve is going to be the mother of all living. He says, yes, you've done messed up. Yes, you've messed up in the Garden of Eden. But in so many ways, even though He has separated them from himself, he is still taking care of them. He is still being good to them. This God should have abandoned these people. This God should have abandoned who they were, and yet he stuck with them. If the children of Israel should have known anything, even leading up to their exile, exit from the land of Egypt, rather, leading from their exit from the land of Egypt, they should have known that they could trust God. They should have known that they could depend on God because even in their sinfulness, God has taken care of them for over 400 years. God has brought them out of this. He had to lower them, but God has brought them out of this. But they realize they're going to have to spend a time in the wilderness because guess what they did? As soon as they got out of Egypt, they sinned against God again. Beloved, can I tell you that one of the greatest things in this world is that no matter how many times you've sinned, God has made a way for your restoration. That God has made a way for your redemption unto Himself. That as bad as you may be, as bad as you've messed up, God welcomes you back to His presence again. Now, He does say in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man... Become is become as one of us to know good and evil, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And it says in verse 24, I'm just reading it again, he says, So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims with the flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. To keep the way of the tree of life. Beloved, one thing is true about sin. In His redemptive and restoration process, you don't get to hold on to your sin anymore. There's going to have to be a sacrifice. There's going to have to be somebody that comes and takes the penalty of our sin. There's going to have to be somebody that steps in and takes what should rightfully be ours. Really and truly, the separation that Adam and Eve faced, they should have died instantly. And in a sense, they did die instantly, sure. 
that they should have, their life should have been done for instantly. And yet God is still taking care of them. But God had to send the Redeemer who was to come. Israel, in all of their goodness, and all of the ways that they should be able to honor God, they keep messing up because they're in need of the Messiah and our Lord Christ Jesus. Beloved, let us always remember that we're still in need of Christ. We sang one song by the Gettys this morning. I used to have it printed out. I used to have the other one up here. and I think I, I, think I got rid of it from up here. But there's a song that the Gettys sing called The True and Better Adam. And they walk through so many of the figures of the Bible and they say this wasn't the answer. This wasn't the answer. But Jesus was the, ultimately the answer we're looking for. It amazes me that the center of this chapter, I promise I'm coming to a conclusion, it amazes me that the center of this chapter is just about verse 14, give or take a little bit. But the center of his dealing with sin, the way that he is, he asks Adam, he asks Eve, then he deals with the serpent, then he deals with Eve, then he deals with Adam. Right there in the middle, he's dealing with the serpent. We've already seen how this, what we call the chiastic structure, what we call the structure of bookends, leading to the center, and the center point mattering is, that seems to be the overall focus of chapter 3. If you leave chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, please read that He has given us a promise. Please read that He is dealing with sin, that He is going to deal with sin finally and ultimately in our lives. That yes, you and I are going to wrestle with its effects for the rest of our lives, but it is true that Christ is the true and better Adam. It is true that Christ is the promised seed of that was given unto here in the promise that God was dealing with the serpent over here. And He said, I'm going to send the one that is going to crush your head. You'll bruise His heel, but He'll crush your head. You'll nip at His heels. Beloved, sometimes Satan may still be nipping our heels. Sometimes He's going to bruise our heels. Sometimes that's going to cause a whole lot of pain. But beloved, ultimately Christ has crushed the head of the serpent in our lives. Beloved, as bad as sin is in our lives, God has given our means of escape from sin. As bad as sin may be, as intrinsic, as captivating as sinful patterns may be in our lives, He's given the way for our escape. Ultimately, it's to stand on His Word. Ultimately, it's just to stand on what Christ alone has done for our lives. Let us go to Him in prayer this morning. Father, we love You. We thank You for this. We thank You as imperfect that we are that You've made the means for our restoration. Every one of us this morning comes and wanting to blame sin on for some other reason, but Father, every one of us comes before You this morning just confessing our present sins before You, confessing all of our sins before You, our sinful ways, our sinful thoughts, our sinful actions. God, Father, we confess these things before You, knowing that we've messed up in some capacity, oh God. Father, we thank You for those of us that have been born again. We thank You that You draw us to live lives with You, but God, we do see ourselves as the children of Israel so many times, belonging to You, being Your covenantal children, oh God, and yet, Father, far, far astray from You in so many ways. And yet still you have made the means to care for us and to protect us and to restore us to yourselves. Lord, what a humbling truth that we have this morning before us. May we go out and live this before others. Live a life that, look, we're not perfect, but we trust in you, O God. Father, may it be that somebody looks upon our lives and sees the evidence of your grace. There's nothing good that we've done, O God. But Father, may somebody else see the patterns of grace in our lives and the work that you've done. And may even in this holiday season, they be able to find themselves rejoicing and being glad in you. Lord, we pray that somebody this morning would be born again. We pray that somebody in our lives this week would be born again, that they may see these precious truths and live in these precious truths. We pray it all in thy Son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. Amen and amen.